0: Welcome to Into Theology. In this episode, we're going to look at the 13th chapter of book one of John Calvin's Institutes. Uh, It's going to be a little different today because my co-host was unable to make it uh, this week. So it'll be a shorter episode, it'll be a solo episode, and I just kind of want to briefly bring to attention some of the main or some key themes that are in this chapter. So it's interesting, so far in Calvin's Institutes, Uh, He's been doing a lot of prefatory work, and I almost feel like he's getting to maybe where he wants to get to now. He's really hitting on the heart of doctrine. And this whole chapter, chapter 13 of book 1, is really on the Trinity. It's on who God is and how he is three. And it's pretty fascinating. Um, As he goes through it, he has some of the traditional things that you would think about in kind of Trinitarian thought. Um, And he's able to use some of the scholastic language and terminology, but he's doing his best to kind of say things according to the biblical and scriptural idiom. But he doesn't actually consistently do this, and he explains why. He argues, as we'll see, that sometimes it's right to use words that don't appear in scripture in order to explain the meaning of scripture. So we'll get to that, but I want to kind of start where he starts. And he basically says the thing that scripture teaches about God, at least at the beginning here, is that God is infinite and spiritual in essence. Well, that's already pretty important. I mean, these are kind of the key definitions of God that are found throughout Scripture in various ways and idioms. God has no, you know, there's no limit to God. You can't place him in a temple. He lives across, he's somehow across the whole world. Uh, he's spiritual. Jesus says in John four twenty four, God is spirit. So a lot of this language is interesting because it's scriptural, but it's also historic and part of kind of the tradition of what church and theologians in the church say about God. So he is infinite. He's spiritual. He's incomprehensible. This is a uh, chapter thirteen and, and part one. Uh, so he uh, goes on to talk about all these different things about God, and essentially. We can't measure him, you can't contain him. He's beyond our comprehensibility, so he's incomprehensible. This goes back to the unknowability of God. And that's quite fascinating. He's infinite, unknowable, incomprehensible, spiritual. He is, in some sense, utterly unlike us. And he's also unknowable fully. And here we enter into what I find to be a really interesting discussion about God's divine accommodation. Now, Calvin uses the language of accommodation throughout the Institutes. There's at least one other place that I can remember it offhand, and I'm sure we'll find out that he uses it elsewhere as well. But here it's quite useful to think about what he's saying. So let me read kind of at the end of section one of chapter 13 here what Calvin says in his own words. The anthropomorphites also who imagine a corporeal God, from the fact that scripture often ascribes to him a mouth, ears, eyes, hands, and feet are easily refuted. So here he's talking about a group of people who said, look, we need to read the Bible so literally, so kind of woodenly, that if God is said to have a hand or a nose or an ear or an eye, it means that God actually has those things. God would essentially be a human being, but above, and greater, and more majestic than we are. He's a superman, in essence. And so, then he says, for who of even slight intelligence does not understand that, as nurses commonly do with infants, God is wont in a measure to lisp in speaking to us. Thus, such forms of speaking do not so much express clearly what God is like, as accommodate the knowledge of him to our slight capacity." To do this, he must descend far beneath his loftiness. Uh, this is across the Christian tradition. Everybody at all times, as far as I know, without exception, have understood that the way in which God communicates himself in scripture is through analogies, is through uh, using very human ways to describe who he is. Like, there's He's angry, so smoke comes out of his nostrils, and yet... We know that God has no form. He's invisible, spiritual. He can transcend the whole globe, the universe. Uh, he's in no one location. He's infinite. He has no finitude. And so he, he doesn't really have literal nostrils that uh, smoke comes out of, but these are ways to communicate what is true about God, that He's does not like our sin in this particular case. So God then accommodates himself to us. And so why does he do that? Well, Calvin says, look, if you have a nurse with a, with an infant, uh, you speak to this infant in, in ways that are appropriate to his capacity. You know this if you're a parent. If you have a three-year-old or a four-year-old, you talk to them differently than you would a fourteen-year-old or a twenty-four-year-old. It's not necessarily that you uh, don't communicate to them truly, but you tell them things that are simpler and easier to understand. If I'm going to tell my daughter uh, something about, I don't know, who God is, I might use simpler images. I might make it. Uh, clear to her in ways that she can know by analogy what or who God is. But as she gets older, I'm going to try to key in and involve her imagination so that she might be able to conceive of God in ways that are much more, I don't want to say more true, but more clear, more fulsome, more accurate, more attuned to the invisible and immense uh, nature of God, to the infinite and spiritual essence, as Calvin says it. So that's important. You have God, in essence, who is infinite, spiritual, incomprehensible, Uh, no way to contain him. And then you have in scripture ways that uh, the Bible often describes him with hands, feet, nose, etc. These are anthropomorphisms. These are accommodations to fit our capacity so that by an analogy to what we know through experience, we can come to know true things about God. And then he continues and he talks about there being three persons in God. And he's going to kind of build on this. But he first wants to tell us uh, in uh, section two of chapter 13 here that God is simple. So he says, and in fact, let's read the first paragraph of the section two. But God also designates himself by another special mark to distinguish himself more precisely from idols. For He so Uh, proclaims himself the sole God, has to offer himself to be contemplated clearly in three persons, that is, Father, Son, and Spirit. Continuing, unless we grasp these, only the bare and empty name of God um, flits about in our brains, to the exclusion of the true God. Again, lest anyone imagine that God is threefold, or think God's simple essence to be torn into three persons, we must here seek a short definition to free us all from error. And then he goes on to kind of continue to talk about what this means, and he says in one case, For since the essence of God is simple and undivided, and he contains all in himself, without proportion or derivation, but in integral perfection, the Son will be improperly, even foolishly called a stamp. But, because the Father, although distinct in his proper nature, expresses himself fully in the Son, for a very good reason, it is said that he has made his hypostasis visible in the latter. In close agreement with this are the words immediately following, this is from Hebrews 1, that the Son is the splendor of his glory. Surely we infer from the Apostles' words that the very hypostasis that shines forth in the Son is in the Father. From this, we also ascertain the son's hypostases, which distinguishes him from the father. Okay, so the word hypostasis is it a Greek word, which is very similar to the word person in theological thought, but it kind of works like this. God is one in a simple essence. So to have a simple essence, Calvin doesn't really go on to define it, but it's pretty commonplace in theology. To be simple means uh, everything you are is what you are. All your attributes are who you are. There is no multiplicity in you. You're not three different gods, father, son, spirit. There's one God who cannot be divided. And there are, there's one father, one son, one spirit. And you can't count them. It's not like one, two, three, three things. It's one, 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 one. There's one God, one father, one spirit, one son in the oneness of who God is because he is simple. But we have to realize that scripture also reveals three somethings, whatever those things are in the language that we use to say what those some things are is uh, father, son, and spirit that's in the Bible, but also the word hypostasis or person or subsistence. These are all words that Calvin will use to kind of articulate the, how the three persons are what they are without damaging the simplicity of the divine nature, which is one. Okay. So that's kind of the basic idea of what's going on here. Um, it's important then for Calvin to defend the idea of the word Trinity here. Uh, He's trying to do a a renewal or a reformation of the church according to Scripture. At his times, things are changing, but you have to remember, in the 16th century, in the West anyways, everybody's Roman Catholic. And who's ever Protestant now in Calvin's day, are the part of the Roman Catholic Church that reformed. Uh, Things change and move, and nations and all that kind of stuff happen, but he's still kind of in the wild west of the Reformation. So sometimes we think of the the Roman Catholic Church as like um, the separate entity. Rather, in reality, by definition, everybody in the West, you're essentially Roman Catholic by at least outward identity. Those who wanted reform, the huge number of people in the Roman Catholic Church who wanted reformed became Protestants. And what Calvin is trying to do is reform the church according to scripture. So uh, he has to defend against this notion and against, I think, actually various people more accurately who are saying, look, you're, you're using extra Bible words. The word Trinity doesn't exist in the Bible. So why are you using it? Well, his answer is pretty simple. It's look, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, granted, uh, but they're definitely admissible because they dis- that word and other words he mentions like homoousius, which means that the uh, the father and son have share in one nature. Um, th- those kinds of words actually describe what's true about the Bible. It's a theological judgment of truth. It's not it, even though the word doesn't appear in Scripture, it is a word that describes what the Bible says accurately and truly. And he begins to kind of push back against a notion that you can only use Bible words because they're useful words in explaining the Bible that are like summaries. It's like hanging your your um, hat on a coat rack. Those little coat racks are like these little things you can hang the whole the coat, the jacket. Maybe you put your boots up there as well. It's one thing that hangs all these things, that holds all these things together. And so he's actually pushing it back against this idea that you can't use words that don't appear in scripture. He says you need to be careful about it. You need to be very thoughtful about it. They have to match what scripture says is my presumption. don't know if he quite says it that way, but I think that idea is present. And then he kind of pushes back against those who deny it. And he actually calls them, if I can find the place where he does it. Um, let's see. Well, I can't find it exactly, but he's pushing it back against various groups that are heretical. And they have this sort of piety, I suppose, where they're saying, well, we only use the Bible words, but we can't say the word Trinity. And in so doing, they become so biblicist that they're similar to the people who uh, think that God has a nose or eyes or ears because scripture uses that language. It is a kind of a biblical literalism that he, that bring, that guys like Arius also brought up in early church. And we have to be careful about that. Scripture is a living body of inf- uh, of a revelation from Genesis to Revelation that is meant to be communicated as a whole canon where we think through all of what Scripture says by the Spirit in the church in conversation with other pastors and leaders whom the Spirit has equipped uh, in those particular roles to elucidate the meaning of the text. And therefore, if you proof text or say you can't use any word outside Scripture, you end up uh, falling into some major problems because like, just for example, we use the word Bible, which refers to 66 books that are collected, that we find are inspired, that are the inspired canon. Well, the Bible doesn't use the word Bible in that way, you know? So we even have just common language like that, that we have to be careful of if we become too strong. And with Calvin, I think we can easily affirm that language like essence, substance, trinity, insofar as they accurately describe what the Bible says are great and wonderful words to use, and that's really part of the essence of Scripture. So we can use those words. All right. It's interesting, He uh, when he's going to talk about how to distinguish the Father, Son, and Spirit, he goes back to kind of the ancient and scriptural way, which are there. there are relations in God that are defined by their name. So, okay, you have a father. All right. Well, how does the father distinguish himself by the son? Well, in the most basic way that he's father and the son's the son. The father is the father of the son. The son is the son of the father. That's a relationship. If I have a, if my wife has a child and I'm the father, then that child is my son or daughter. There's a new relationship created by that material physical birth. Um, If I breathe out uh, air, then there's a relationship because my, whole body has breathed something out. It's from me and out of me. And the spirit sort of works in that way. So these are just kind of the basic ways that you distinguish that, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that's what he highlights if if memory serves. He also talks about other things like the, um, I think the son is like wisdom and so on. Before we get to that, I think it's useful to see that Calvin actually affirms the ancient doctrine of eternal generation. So in book one here, in section eight, On the eternity of the word. It's really interesting. Talks about the words of the son, the word of God. Has no beginning. And that's essential from scripture. Uh, He is the word that in Genesis 1 when God said let there be light. He's that word. That let there be light is the word of God. There's power and word. Um, Or at least Calvin says the word is before that anyways. But then he says at the very end here, Uh, nor did John overlook this because before he passes on to the creation of the universe, John 1.3, he says that in the beginning the Word was with God, John 1.1. Therefore we again state that the Word, conceived beyond the beginning of time by God, has perpetually resided with Him. By this, His eternity, His true essence, and His divinity are proved. That language, that are conceived beyond the beginning of time by God, refers to the, uh, the Son's generation from God, from eternity, beyond any category of time. So, if a cow births a baby cow, that happens in time. There's a generation that happened. If a human has a child, that's a generation. That's all in time. But the word came from God, is conceived from God beyond all time. It's an eternal generation. And That is one important characteristic. He's a father of the son and the son is of the father and that relationship has been True forever. There's never been a time when that relationship was not true It is a relationship that transcends the category of time. That's called eternal generation. That's important and if you deny that uh, a lot of uh, well then you have to figure out when the sun became the sun and you fall into all sorts of errors because it sounds very much like Arianism or various things like that. Okay. So that's another important aspect of what's going on here. Um, there's lots of proofs uh, of the divinity of Christ. It looks like from the old Testament, which is important. I think it's useful when he, when he's distinguishing, Oh, well, here's something that's really useful in section 16. I love this. This is scriptural and also throughout the early church. Um, how do you know God is one in three? Well, how are you baptized? You're baptized in the singular name of the father, son, and Holy spirit. Matthew 28, 19, uh, Calvin actually picks up on this and thinks of the baptism. He says, uh, in this, in this section, now baptism is a sacrament of faith. It confirms for us the unity of God from the fact that it is one, there's one baptism and there's one son, one spirit, one father. I believe he talks about all those things. I'm just kind of scanning the section again, haven't read it previously. But that's massively important. This is from the early church. When you were baptized, you were baptized into the name of God. And that name is no other name but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, And therefore, uh, you take on that name. You bear that name. Uh, It's interesting to think about taking the Lord's name in vain. And there's an argument to be made that in the New Covenant, you do so when you take the name of baptism and then live like the devil because then you're bearing the name of God through your baptismal sacramental uh, initiation, but you live as if that's not true, and that's a major problem. Then when he gets to threeness, I find it fascinating that he quotes one of my favorite theologians, Gregory of Nazianzus, a 4th century Cappadocian father, and uh, he quotes him and he says this in section 17, and that passage in Gregory of Nazianzus vastly delights me. Quote from Gregory. I cannot think on one without being encircled by the splendor of the three, nor can I discern the three without being straightway carried back to the one. Calvin then continues after that quotation. Let us not then be led to imagine a trinity of persons that keep our thoughts distracted and does not at once lead them back to that unity. Indeed, the words Father, Son, and Spirit imply a real distinction— let no one think that these titles, whereby God is variously distinguished from his from his works, are empty, but a distinction, not a division. It's not a division because God is one, simple essence, but a distinction. And then he goes on to explain it more. Uh, again, he's kind of he says uh, this distinction did not have its beginning from the time, or rather, nor did this distinction have its beginning from the time that he assumed flesh. But before this also it was manifest that he was the only begotten in the bosom of the father. Another way in the same section that Calvin affirms eternal generation. You really have to affirm that. That the father eternally begot the son before all time. Before any category of change. Outside of everything that is human and created. Or you will fall into some sort of error almost certainly. So that's massively important. Section 18, he begins to talk more specifically. It looks like about how they distinguish—you uh, distinguish the Father, Son, and Spirit. There's an order; the Father is first in order, but this doesn't imply any sort of subordination in terms of their eternal characteristics. Uh, but rather, there's just an order of of being that we can see. Um, past this, they have a particular quality. There are relationships. Um, in section 20, he says that, uh, that when we profess to believe in one God under the name of God is understood a single simple essence in which we comprehend three persons or hypostases. It's a great definition of God is one simple essence under which we see three persons or hypostases, one essence, one father, one son, one Holy Spirit. Uh, that's massively important and looks like at the end here. He again affirms simplicity and has some words against heretics and various things he wants to talk through. All of this is valuable and helpful. Um, just scanning through to see if there's anything else that might be really valuable to bring out. I think it's in, he talks about Tertullian, uh, he has Hilary of Poitiers, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, and I think some others, Irenaeus. In fact, you can tell that he's read Irenaeus carefully because he summarizes the argument of Irenaeus. And I think maybe this would be a good way, and Augustine. Uh, This might be a good way to kind of just end this podcast and to realize everything that Calvin is saying, it's very true that it is found in scripture or is a necessary implication of scripture. Therefore, you know, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are found in scripture and necessarily they are a triunity. They are a triune essence. Um, It's necessary. Now that word is then a word that we created to describe what is necessarily true because of those three, they all are God. But um, he has that, and yet, and Justin Martyr, it looks like, too. Uh, yep, Justin Martyr. Um, yep. And it's really interesting. So by citing all of these different fathers, Calvin is doing something unique. He may not necessarily be intending it by like explicit thought, but here is what he's doing. He's saying, yeah, what we're doing in this Reformation is not only scriptural, Certainly is scriptural. We are reforming the Roman Catholic Church, which then all of those in the Roman Catholic Church who wanted to be reformed called themselves one of the reformed names. You're, you're Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, whatever. But at this time, those groups are being reformed by scripture. Okay. And then Calvin is showing in this Reformation, we are saying nothing different than what the early church said. That's massively important. Because I think sometimes we fall into this pattern of thinking, you know, uh, Luther put those, uh, the 95 Theses on the wall, I think in 1517 or 1518, uh, I think it's 1517, but it could be 18, my brain is not telling me the answer right now, but I'm sure that you can correct me on this, whichever date is accurate. When Luther did that, there's something new that happened, and there's not a lot of continuity with what happened before. Everything before is the Roman Catholic bad thing, and everything after is the Protestant good thing. But that really doesn't work because who are the reformed people? They are that segment of the Catholic Church that reformed. <laughs> they are, in one sense, the reformed, Catholic, holy, and apostolic church. Yeah, no longer Roman because we don't pay, uh, pay kind of uh, obedience to the Roman pontiff, finding that position to be unacceptable and finding scripture to be our final authority. But nevertheless, they are the Reformed Catholic Church. And when Calvin's citing all these divines, uh, all these early church people, he is showing continuity because our church uh, is the church that Jesus said I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. they never did. The Holy Spirit was building his church throughout church history, uh, throughout the entire period of uh, the post-New Testament age up until the Reformation. Granted, the Roman Catholic Church needed a massive reformation. Things got really, really bad, especially in the 1400s, 1500s. Everybody knew that, everybody wanted to reform, but it was really only the reformers who took that reformation to its furthest uh, extreme by saying, no, we need to reform everything according to the word of God in pretty wild ways according to those standards. But in so doing, they were really just restoring the church to its early, scriptural, and um, patristic emphases. And one of the things you're going to begin to see is that the later reformers, especially the scholastic reformers of the 17th century, are going to pay really close attention to even the medieval church. Um, The school in Utrecht that was uh, massively important to, I assume was massively important to Protestant training, uh, actually used Thomas Aquinas Summa uh, Theologica in its, uh, Theologica, uh, whatever, Theologica, anyways, it doesn't matter, Uh, the pronunciation. Uh, They used that as one of their main textbooks. Calvin himself, I think, cites maybe 40 odd times, I can't remember the exact number, Bernard of Clairvaux, which is a medieval divine. And so most of the reformers, and then many of the later reformers, I would say kind of the 17th century uh, scholastic ones in particular, show deep continuity, not only with the medieval church, but also the patristic church. And so I think as Christians today, as Protestants, Protestants today, Uh, We can follow uh, Calvin's example, other Protestants' example, and show a sort of Catholicity in our identity by means of having Scripture as our our final authority, by trusting in the Spirit, by going back to Irenaeus, Justin, Augustine, and others, and showing that continuity and learning from these earlier Spirit-filled people who uh, are the effect of Christ building his church by the Holy Spirit, They are not other groups that are out there. They are us. The Reformed Church is that segment of the Roman Catholic Church that truly did reform. And therefore, it's entirely appropriate, if we want to today, to call ourselves the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Catholic in the sense of universal, not in the sense of Roman Catholic. We're not Roman Catholic. We are the Reformed, universal church built on the teaching of the apostles with continuity throughout the Middle Ages and the Patristic Age back to the New Testament where the church was born. Kelvin does that, and I can really appreciate that, and yet I think he's a great example to us that he's not just slavishly following whoever came before him, but is consistently going back to the Holy Scriptures. And so he gives us a good model for us to think about doing Trinitarian theology, and I think that we can expect to learn more and more from him as we continue this series. So I think I'm gonna kind of end here for today. And let me just double check here the reading for next week. It looks like it is section 14, so one section again. So join us next week as I hope to have my co-host back, Ian Clary, and we'll have another discussion. Thank you for bearing with me on this solo go. I haven't had a, haven't had done one like this before, so hopefully it was okay. I'm sure I'll learn how to do this better and more effectively to help you uh, think through and reflect on the readings every week again i would love to hear from you on twitter facebook email whatever it is things that you're learning questions that you have uh, i think it'd be wonderful if we could continue to learn from each other as we are studying kelvin and ultimately to know the true and living god and to enjoy him and his creation forever thanks for joining us we'll see you next time